London Lopate at large. I'm London Lopate. The weather in our area has been generally dry and unseasonably warm, and the weather continues to be a major news story throughout the country. So you might wonder what effect it's had on the plants of those of us in this area who like to grow things. Well, joining us now is one of our favorite regular guests on the show, Pete Morosky, a nurseryman and environmentalist, the owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center in Pauling, New York. That's in Dutchess County. And we invite you to call us now with your gardening questions. Write it down. Our on-air number, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Hello, Pete. Welcome back to our show. Well, thank you, Leonard. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. We've been experiencing weather extremes in our area, but it's been mostly mild, although... (laughs) Uh, We've had a couple of really cold days, (laughs) but it's been largely cold and snowy out west and everything else in between. What do you read into that? Is this just global warming? Well, uh, it is in a sense, uh, but it's also, I've kind of coined a phrase a while back called global weirding, because it's (laughs) not only global warming, but it's also um, extremes in our weather. You know, like, like you said, For instance, this winter was extremely warm here on the East Coast. In fact, January and February combined temperature was the warmest January and February on record. New York City had the latest measurable snow, uh, or when they got their first measurable snow uh, in the beginning of February, only two inches. Uh, But it snowed quite a bit north of Albany and up in the Adirondacks and up in Vermont and up in New Hampshire. You know, the ski area's got quite a bit of snow up there. So there was a definite definite demarcation between warm uh, warm winter and, and a cold winter. Uh, the rest of the country got bombed. I mean, you know, from the Midwest right out to the West Coast. I mean, we all know that they needed the rain out West, but uh, well, they got more than they needed. And, uh, you know, now the big melt-off starts. And uh, let's just hope it's a snow melt-off and uh, that, they, you know, that they don't have too much flooding out there. Now, we've had... Uh, just within the last week or so, very warm days, cold days. Um, the uh, uh, trees are g- getting leaves, uh, flowers are, are showing up. But what uh, impact do these extremes have on plants? Uh, if if uh, they, uh, Do they feel welcomed when the weather gets warm and then suddenly have to deal with the fact that it's cold today? Well... Plants in temperate regions of the world always welcome spring. And this spring was uh, much warmer than normal uh, that we usually have uh, weather in the wintertime. So uh, the plants uh, did pretty well. Um, I mean, they're under stress because we had such a dry summer last year. Hmm. And the winter uh, was warm, but it was wet. And, you know, some of the things I'm noticing out there is, you know, some of this spring flowering trees are really giving us a show you know after a dry summer and suffering uh quite a bit uh last year you know the shad the amelinkia uh the service berry looks absolutely beautiful i haven't seen service berry look this nice in many many years the dogwoods are coming out uh you know all the spring bulbs uh are coming out and you know once again Leonard, because of uh you know the warm temperatures we're having 
Um, everything is early this year. You know, all, all, all the all the bugs, all the hatches are about two to three weeks early. Um, and it, 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 it's a funny thing because you know it seems like uh, a lot of the uh, you know, a lot of the seasons are shifting a little bit. You know, we get some warm and then we get really cold and it gets back to warm again. It's it's it's, it's very topsy turvy and it's tough to figure out. You say our spring garden chores list is growing a lot, and there aren't enough hours in a day to get everything done this time of year. So, how do we choose which things to do first? Well, you know, every year is a little bit different. You know, the first thing you want, the first thing you want to do out in your garden is just kind of go around and, and, and do a quick look on, you know, how the garden did this winter. You know, uh, because we didn't have much heavy snow, there wasn't a lot of broken branches, but we had a lot of wind, and the wind did some damage uh, to a lot of the trees. Um, you know, plants. And, 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 you know, we want to get out there. We want to clean up a little bit, but we don't want to clean up too early. You know, many, uh, many insects that live in, 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 in grass uh, leaves and, and, and in stems, uh, you know, overwinter there because it, they're out of the wind and it's, and it's, and it, and it's a, nice, uh, a, a nice place to be until the, until the weather starts to get warm again. So we want to go out there. We don't want to, we don't want to start cleaning up too early because, you know, in general, uh, a lot of times, many gardeners will clean their garden really good in the fall, and 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 it'll it'll it'll, it'll be that way all winter. But we want to try to keep our garden a little messy uh, in the winter time because you know a lot of wildlife uh, you know huddles in our garden. They get down in there during heavy rains and snows, and it really protects plants and gardens. So you know to get out there and clean up and and start doing an inventory of of how plants made it through the winter is a good start. You say uh, wildlife. Um, what natives should we plant to sustain wildlife in our gardens? Well, Leonard, that's a great question. Um, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that I always talk about is, uh, you know, what are the top plants that wildlife depends on in our garden? Uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, a lot of plants that have been here since the last ice age. For instance, willows, many Many birds and insects uh, live and, and feed on, on willow leaves and, and live within their bark. The willows are, are an important tree. Oak trees, the white oak, Leonard. The white oak sustains over 250 different plants, insects, and animals. You know, not only do they eat the acorns, but a lot of insects, a lot of caterpillars eat the leaves. You know, uh, the white oak has that exfoliating bark, so a lot of insects will get underneath the bark during bad weather. So oak is, is a very important plant. Cherry, uh, you know, the cherry trees, the, um, the fruit co that comes from the cherry tree, met, uh, and I'm talking about the native black cherry, many of the uh, native cherry trees sustain wildlife in our garden. Hickory, chestnut, all the nut trees. And you know, Leonard, you know, people always tend to ask me, and I had a question come uh, from you uh, about one of your customers, uh, from one of your customers, you know, why are native plants so important to the natural world because our our insects and our birds and, and our animals you know there's that there's this symbiotic relationship that exists between all three and they depend on one another for survival you know we started bringing plants trees and perennials from other parts of the world here into the into north america and you know we, what we're doing is you know we're creating dead zones in our environment many of our insects and animals haven't adapted to these plants in our environment 
So it's tough for them to digest these plants. Now, the question always comes, you know, will they ever uh, adjust uh, to, to eating, you know, plants from Europe or Asia? And the answer to that question is probably, but it may take one or 2,000 years, and uh, they may be extinct by then. So You're, you're yes, saying it, plants from Europe and Asia because we've been importing these plants, even though the, the, the local uh, plants are, are quite uh, great in their own right? That's right. You know, I, I mean, why are we bringing you, them in? Simply because we <laughs> want to remember because people want to remember what it was like in the in the home country. Absolutely. Man. That's that's the answer to that question. You know, you know, why do we bring lawn grass uh, to North America from England? Because, you know, uh, that that's what it was, that part of Europe. There's all kinds of croquet and golf. And, and, and that's where all the uh, polo. That's where all these games started. And they started on turf grass. So, you know, when uh, Europeans came to New England, they wanted to put in stuff that reminded them, reminded them of home. Norway maples, uh, Norway spruces, uh, euonymus, uh, uh, Japanese uh, maples. You know, all these plants came from other areas of the world. And the reason why they're able to survive here is because back home, uh, they grow in a similar environment uh, that there is here, but you know that creates a lot of problems too. You know, you just can't start bringing plants over from other parts of the world because they're bringing their insects and they're bringing their diseases, and our trees and shrubs can't adjust uh, to, to these new bugs and insects. And that's why we had things like uh, Dutch elm disease. That's why all our ashes are dying. Hmm. Hemlock woolly adelgid. You know, these are all pests that came from other parts of the world where our our trees, shrubs, and perennials, had, had, you know, had no defense against these these new problems. Isn't this the best time of the year to to plant? What are what are proper planting practices? Well, Leonard, it is. And you know, if you look at a map, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh no, fall is better than spring. Spring is better than fall." A lot of it depends on the type of winter you have in your zone. Okay, basically, from New York City north. The best time to plant is spring because we have, generally speaking, rough winters in this part of the world. And so you, you want mean right plant- now we should be planting now? Right, right. As soon as in the spring, as soon as the ground thaws, you can start planting. Oh. Um, you know, one thing you want to be very careful of <clears throat> is don't plant in soils that are too wet because if you plant after a heavy rainstorm or if the soils are super saturated, you wind up with soil compaction. And uh, what, what we all need to understand is that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of inter- air trans- transporting between surface roots and, and the air that's in the soil. So believe it or not, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the roots do need uh, the air in the soil. They, they really can't survive if, if the soil is too tight. So, uh, yeah, as soon as you can get out there and plant, you know, but you want to be careful, too, especially, you know, everybody's out there new, now doing vegetable gardens. That's a new thing today. Every, everybody wants to grow their own vegetables. You know, they don't trust what they're buying in the stores. They want to they want to grow organically. And, and what a great time to learn and, and grow organically. But we're not really past our frost free uh, 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 spring yet. In other words, you can't. You can't plant uh, a, a lot of plants that, uh, that, that that really get affected by temperatures below 32 degrees. So we got to wait, especially in our area up here, up in Dutchess County, 
our last frost-free dates usually end uh, uh, the end of um, uh, the end of May. So you know, yes, you can plant a lot of beans and lettuces and all those cold hardy uh, uh, vegetables and perennials now, but. You know, wait a little bit longer, maybe another month to plant those finicky vegetables that uh, that don't like uh, the real cold weather. If we, if we happen to get another frost. How can people with front yard gardens incorporate fruit and vegetable plantings into their landscapes? Well, you know, each year we go out into our landscape and maybe a shrub died here or we, we have a little pat, a patch of, of bare ground in our front yard. Uh, that we used to plant a lot of annuals in. I, 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 and I started doing this about 10 years at my house. All these little areas that are very sunny, uh, that have, you know, a lot of, uh, that have good soils in them, you know, why not, instead of planting marigolds there, do a bed of uh, radishes mm-hmm. or uh, carrots? You know, carrots, if you let them go, they have a, they have a very attractive uh, foliage, and they also... Uh, have a, 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 a very attractive flower. Queen Anne's lace that we see growing along highways uh, all over the place is a type of carrot. So, you know, carrot is a handsome plant. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of other vegetables that we can plant right in our landscape. You know, trees, shrubs. You know, let's say you lost a, a shrub in your landscape last fall, you know, and, it, and it's a nice sunny spot and, 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 and you've got four or five feet uh, uh, of height and width uh, that you can fill this area with, you know, I would recommend a blueberry or um, elderberry or any kind of shrub or, or even pawpaw, one of your favorite trees, Leonard. Uh, maybe we can incorporate that into the landscape and bring this whole native plant concept uh, back into our yards. Don't native plants have more nutrient value than cultivated varieties or exotic and introduced species? Well, Leonard, there's an interesting study going on uh, at universities right now uh, on, um, you know, our cultivated varieties. Have, do they have still have the same uh, uh, nutritional value as straight species plants? And many do and many don't. You know, one example would be uh, Asclepias tuberosa, butterfly weed. If anybody knows about butterfly weed, I mean, I grow a lot of it in my garden because it attracts monarchs and hummingbirds. It's a very short plant. It likes a dry, hot area with full of sun, and it has this beautiful orange flower uh, midsummer. Now, there's also another variety that has a yellow flower. Same plant, same uh, same growth pattern. But well, you know, one of one of the one of the butterfly weeds have an orange flower, and one has a yellow flower, and both flower have the same nutritional value. Now that's not necessarily true for all plants. I know some echinacea and 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 some other uh, perennials out there. Once they start playing with colors and 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 cultivated varieties, they kind of lose their nutritional value. So the big push right now is straight species, more nutritional value. Making sure we feed wildlife because you know what, Leonard? Wildlife needs our help right now. My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Pete Moroski, M-U-R-O-S-K-I, a nurseryman and environmentalist. And we take your calls when he comes on our show. 
A reminder, our on-air number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. On a totally other front, weren't two motherless bear cubs rescued from the side of the Metro North train tracks near uh, where you live in, in Pauling? Well, right behind the garden center. Uh you know, uh, I guess I don't Near know. Near the Appalachian I, Trail? Right off the Appalachian Trail. Someone called them in. They were just kind of wandering the railroad tracks crying about a week ago. And um, uh, some some guys came in from the state and rescued them. And now I understand they're out in either New Poles or Western New York. Um, you, know, uh, you know, this happens quite a bit, Leonard, and especially along the railroad tracks here in Pauling, every once in a while, you know, bear and, and wildlife are always crossing the tracks. And, you know, behind me, uh, the Harlem line, you know, we got the, one of the fastest parts of the tracks. The, you know, the train runs about 70 miles an hour behind here. And, you know, it's a shame, you know, mama must have got caught or hit by the train and, the, and you know, the two cubs were, you know, weeks old. Um, you know, it... It happens quite a bit. It, 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 anybody who either lives or or or, or, or uh, travels the train, you know, one of the things that uh, the great swamp people did here behind Native Landscapes, because you know you got Native Landscapes, you got the railroad tracks right behind the garden center, and then you've got the great swamp behind it. So many, many, many times, like uh, this time of year, starting now. You know, uh, turtles will come out of the swamp and they'll start laying their eggs right behind the garden center or right along the tracks. And what they do is they got to cross those rails, those double rails, you know, to get over to some sandy soil to lay their eggs. Many times crossing the rails, they get flipped over. And as many of us know, turtles have a tough time flipping themselves back Hmm. onto their stomach when they're on their back. So what they did and and they worked with Metro North they created these ridges between the rails of the railroad track so when the turtles get over one rail, they can get on top of the ridge and cross the other rail uh, without getting stuck in the center of the tracks. And, uh, you know, what a great idea. And uh, we get <laughs> we get snapping turtles laying eggs right. You know, we last year we had one mother laying eggs right by the front door of the garden center which kind of freaked a couple of people out. But, you know, we just, you know, we posted somebody there, you know, don't bother her, you know, she's doing her thing and she'll be gone in a couple hours. But yeah, you know, nature is a unbelievable thing, especially when you're real close to the swamp because there's all kinds of wild animals well, crossing the tracks and, and in and around the swamp. I lived for a time in your area and I had a bear, but he wasn't interested in any of the plants. He was interested in what was in the bird feeder, and he used to climb a tree and steal from the bird feeder. Absolutely, Leonard. You know, you know, a free meal. If they can mm-hmm. pick up a free meal anywhere, you know, that's what they're going to do. And uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, they came out with a, you know, what to do about bear problems on your property. And you know, one of the th- one of the things, uh, one of the first things they tell you is. Um, do not uh, feed the bir- feed the birds, especially in the summertime. You know, in the wintertime, when many of the bear are hibernating, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the funky part is, is that in winters like this, Leonard, bear do not hibernate. You know, if we get a mm-hmm. mild winter like this and the food source stays pretty good, um, 
you know, bear will wander most of the winter. It's in cold climates where you get a lot of snow and it, and temperature uh, uh, routinely drops below zero is where bear hibernate. I mean, you look down in the southern Appalachians and down around Georgia and Tennessee, the bear don't really hibernate down there. They, oh, they, they, they slow that. down. They slow down, uh, and, but they continue wandering, uh, looking for food. Should we take some calls? Sure. Again, a reminder, our number here is 212-209-2877 if you want to speak to Pete Morosky. BAI, you're on the air. Yes, hello? Yes, hi. Yes, hi. How's it going? Okay. Like Are you enjoying this? Yes, I do. I enjoy your show a lot. Okay. Well, what do you want to ask Pete about or talk um, to Pete about? Just as far as, I think, as far as the emphasis on the native plants and the trees, I think, is absolutely wonderful. I mean, you know, there's berry plants that you can plant. There's, uh, there's fruit trees. There's the, uh, like, say, a pawpaw tree. It's a native fruit tree. Uh, I just want to comment, like, you want to plant things where you don't need to put pesticides because that, that is the biggest problem. Now, the pawpaw trees used to be all over the place, and That's most right. of them are gone. Is that because they were just dug up? Yeah, because I, I think a lot of them were dug down. up, Leonard. Um, but they have a go- wonderful fruit. Well, they have a wonderful fruit, and if you go south of here, you find more and more of them uh, growing wild. You know, the thing about pawpaws, which is such an interesting tree, um, you know, you need two or three, you need three or more trees for cross-pollination. Um, you know, you just can't plant one pawpaw tree in your yard and, and hope for fruit. Um, you, need, you need that cross-pollination. And, and here's another crazy thing. You know, what pollinates... Pawpaw trees, maggot flies. <laughs> Can I ask the so, caller this? Have you ever had pawpaw paw ice cream? Are you talking to me? I yeah. Have, yeah. No, um, I, I, no, I actually actually grow them on my property. You, you only need two of them, and you really don't they don't need any maintenance at all. But have you ever party. made pawpaw ice cream? No, I've frozen them and eaten them. Well, I try mean, the I, ice I cream. It's fabulous. I understand that. Um, yeah, no, I haven't. I basically just, I like to have the fruit. I think it's, it's, it's a remarkable type of fruit. So, but sir, how many trees do you have on your property? He said two. I have two? I have eight. I have six oh. that are um, producing fruit. You need two to cross-pollinate um, two from different ones because they'll also run up suckers. But if they're genetically the same, they won't uh, pollinate itself. How long have you so had your trees? I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years. Oh you don't wow! See around That's cool. here. You don't see them How big here. are they now? Uh, maybe it's 15, 20 feet. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm, I mean, glad, I really I'm glad you're having pawpaw But uh, like I say, it's, it's a spraying that I won't do. I think some of the native things, even like I got dandelions that grow, which is absolutely wonderful. Because yeah. they don't spray, and then it's actually very healthy for even us to eat. Not that I have done it, but you know, dandelions make some then. of the best salad. If you uh, if you take the dandelion leaves and eat them before they go to flower, they're absolutely delicious and they're full of vitamin C. So, caller, do you have any questions for Pete? Or no, I just like to, to do anything I can to stress that the pesticide, and I really do miss the monarch butterfly. Okay, well, thank you so much for your call. Let's take another call. Bai, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hi. Oh, hi. Hi, Leonard. Oh, I absolutely love your show and enjoy it every day. Um, Carol, New Jersey. Hi, Pete. Hi. Yes. 
Hi. So, um, and I enjoy you so much, too. Um, I'm a, a retired school teacher, and I used to garden at every single school I went to, um, including ones in inner city that had no soil. <laughs> we <laughs> we need more teachers the- like you. Uh, we did it in containers. Yeah. So anyway, uh, two quick questions. One, um, I live in a condo now, and the landscaper, I've asked for them to come because there's some rough spots in the little bit of grass that I have. And, and they said they won't come till like, May after Mother's Day. And I'm wondering, that's kind of late to start grass. That's one question. And two... Um, I'm going to start containers here, and I have the uh, coast of Maine, um, uh, coast of Maine uh, bed mix with the the, the worm castings in it. And uh-huh. um, do I need to mix some more stuff with that to make it um, nutrient rich rich in the containers? Well, let's start with your first question, and that is about the lawn. What you got? What a lot of people need to understand about lawns is that. Lawns, excuse me, lawns, the the soil temperature needs to get up to about 55 to 60 degrees before grass will germinate. And, uh, you know, it's it's reaching that now. Uh, But, you know, what happens is, you know, there's a couple of things that go on in the springtime when it comes to lawns. If you if you if you seed your lawn too early in the season, uh, before it gets a chance to germinate, before the the, the the soil gets warm enough, many of the migrating birds will eat all your seed. And let me tell you, yeah. seed has gotten grass seed has gotten so expensive in the last two or three years. You know, timing is everything. So uh, right. you know, one of the things. So they said they're going to come in and make. All they're going to do is overseed it. Or what else did they say they were going to do for your lawn? Uh, they don't say anything, you know. They they'll probably anything. just throw some grass seed down. Well, you know what you need to do. Yeah. You need to ask. Okay, why is it that okay. you're waiting <laughs> so late the season? And 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 what, what uh, kind of seed you're putting down? And is that all you're doing? And this, you know, are you doing anything about the thatch? You know, if you if you, if you become a, a an, an educated customer, you know, they're going to stand that attention and do the right thing for you nine out of ten times. So, you know, the more you know about what they're doing. Uh, the better off you're going to be. Yes. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that advice. And we no thank problem. you for your call. And let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hi. Hello. Hi, I think that's me. I think I'm next. How are you doing? Okay. You're on the air. Good. Thank you. Um, I have a house out on the North Fork of Long Island, and we have a really bad problem with deer. So we're very restricted on what we can plant. And I wanted to know if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, we have a list. And if you contact me at um, Pete at nativelandscaping.net, I will send you uh, my list of deer-resistant perennials, grasses, herbs. And there's quite a lengthy list of plants that the deer won't eat, like spice bush and, and all kinds of wonderful things. So, um, you know, if, you know, and, but, you know, I'm, to be honest with you, there are some areas where the, you know, like over here at Sherman, Connecticut, you know, I've seen them eat boxwood over there. I've seen them eating Andromeda. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, you know, <laughs> the only thing that they don't eat in some of these areas are plastic and metal. So what, yeah. if you're really into gardening and you don't want the deer on your property, 
Um, do they have any restrictions in your neighborhood about fencing? No. You might no. want to consider a game fence. Um, and we do it all the time because that opens the whole palette of plants to you. How much property right. do you have? Oh, it's not very big. I'd say maybe like um, half an acre. All right. Well, the first thing you do is contact me or look on the Internet, native plants that are that are deer resistant and hone mm -hmm. in on those plants. And mm -hmm. if that still doesn't work, um, uh, go out there and get a bow and arrow and a venison cookbook <laughs> and, and see what you can do with yeah. that. And then um, and then put a fence People. up. People are so against calling the herd for some reason. It's well, they're like doing it out on Fire Island, just to yourself. You know, there's so mm -hmm. many deer out there that they're, uh, you know, they're doing something about that. And you know, in some areas, when you got so many deer like that, it can be dangerous. You know, the ticks, mm -hmm. the Lyme disease, the ehrlichiosis. Oh, yeah, I mean, sure. there's all right. kinds of of tick diseases out there now. So. Um, and, and, and having a, a, an overpopulation of deer is not going to help. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, thank I'm you. Sort of torn between. Thank you very much. I just was wondering, Pete, before we go to a, a little break, does the weather matter for people who grow things indoors? Uh, yeah, it does. <clears throat> if we get, you know, cloudy periods and we don't get a, a, a lot of direct sun, uh, that stunts growth of, of plants. Uh, yeah, definitely. Sun sun plays a major role, and if it's not out every day like it's supposed to be this time of year, um, it could slow it could slow uh, growth down quite a bit. So just put it outside your window. Put it out uh, on nice days like this, Leonard. Bring it from inside the house out to the porch and let it enjoy that direct sun. Yeah, but and people don't all have night, porches either. Some people just live in apartments. Well, right up against the window works, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and but but the important thing is like I. I'll give you an example. I got my figs outside now. I, I brought them out over the weekend when the temperature's in the 80s, but I'm looking at the weather the next couple, three or four days, and, you know, it's getting cool, and, you know, there's, there's a threat of a frost. So, hmm. you know, I may have to bring them inside and then bring them out again, um, and it happens every year this time of year, you know. You think, you think spring's here, but next thing you know, um, it's snowing again. <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My garden is all overgrown And the weeds are creeping up on my home Grass has grown over two foot high And the trees are blocking out the skies French windows won't open anymore Brown eyes are going outside the door A hundred birds are nesting in the trees like a wildlife sanctuary We're back with Pete Morosky, who's a nurseryman and environmentalist, owner of Native Landscapes and Garden Center on Route 22 in Pauling, New York, in Dutchess County, very close to the Appalachian Trail. And we are taking your calls at 212-209-2877. Let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Hello? Um, hello? Yes, it's you. 
Oh, it's me. It, your, this phone doesn't click over. Oh. Hey, listen, um, a few months ago, I said, if I go down in history for one thing, I, I thought being like Johnny Appleseed, who was a real person, but I want to be Peter Milkweed Seed, because <laughs> you were talking about uh, monarch butterflies. Yes. They're kind of disappearing. Yeah, they're, dis- they're down by 90%, and in fact... We're prejudicial with calling milkweed a weed. It's not a weed. It's a feast. The only feed, the only food that monarch butterflies eat. And the population is being wiped out by uh, herbicides. And so what I would love to do is to be like uh, Johnny Appleseed. In other words, if I could just wander, wander the United States planting milkweed and bring back the monarch butterflies. So... Uh, the guest, I want to know what's the well. Actually, the Environmental Defense Fund is is uh, any day now. They're going to mail me milkweed seeds. What is the best way to plant and disseminate milkweed? And why there is why is there a prejudice against it? Because just because of the name weed? Because milkweed is an attractive plant. Well, yeah, I don't. They call it a weed. I mean, that's it, it, that. Of course, that's prejudicial. It's it, weed is the plant you don't want. Yes. Well, it's a common name, you know. Uh, a lot okay. of plants have common have many different common names, and you know, people in different regions of the country give it a certain name. But you're absolutely right. The reason why there's so many less butterflies is because of of herbicides and insecticides, and especially out in the Midwest where. A lot of these herbicides and insecticides are draining out of the field and going into these hedgerows, and that is what's killing the milkweed. Now, you know, as much as I love your idea of going out and spreading milkweed all over the place, you got to make sure that, you know, you spread it in an area, is it going to get flooded with an herbicide again and get killed? So, you know, I think I would like for us to take a good, long, hard look at insecticides and herbicides that, was, that we're spraying on a regular basis. These neonicanoids are, you know, that attack uh, insects and go right after their nervous system. I mean, I, I've, you know, I, I've been to strip, uh, strip malls where they're out there spraying the trees and, and shrubs, and I just kind of walked around observing what they're doing, and these insects were literally falling out of the air, you know, it's just some of these some of these insecticides are just so nasty that you know we really got to look at the chemistry on some of these things and see if we can't change it and make it a little bit more environmentally friendly if if we can you know I just it's it's it's, it's very frustrating to me. Really, so, thank you. So even like planting them next to a golf course wouldn't do much good because the. Uh, Golf course may get herbicides and sure. kill them off, right? Yeah, but you know, there's there's a lot of swampy areas. There's a lot of natural areas, uh, you know, and, and 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 people just don't want you spreading seed on their property either. It's it's one of those, you know. We had a thing, you know. The National Park Service came up here. They got this whole thing going on uh, on the, along the Appalachian Trail with with an, a ratification of a lot of. Um, a, a, a lot of the um, invasive species that are growing along the trail, the Phragmites, the Barberry, and, you know, volunteer groups will get together and, and, and pull all this stuff out. Hmm. And, you know, I sat there because I had one of these meetings here at the garden center, and when they got done talking about it, I kind of raised my hand. And I said, you know, 
I love what you guys are doing, and I think it's a great, great thing that we're doing, trying to eradicate all the um, all, 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 all the invasive plants. But you know, what are you doing to replace them with? Because if you don't reseed an area that you just ripped out two or three acres of of, of barberry, guess what? The barberry is going to be back in about five years. So I think they're missing one important step in this whole bringing back native plants and that is yes eradication is important but we got to we and the national park service uh frowns upon this they won't they won't let you reseed in areas where they've eradicated it doesn't make too much sense to me thank you so much for your call and let's go to another call bai you're on the air hi can you hear me yes i can hear you oh, hi. although well, it would be great if you spoke up a little louder a little uh, All right, so my name is Helen. I'm calling from Ridgewood, New Jersey. Um, so we bought this house two years ago. It's not a big house in Ridgewood. And, and we have a little yard. Um, here's my question. How do, and we, I, I'd love to uh, plant um, flower, not some, uh, things, uh, you know, uh, berries and, and lettuce and all that. But my fear is, I, how can I tell if the people that lived here before put down herbicides and pesticides? So I don't want to take that chance, and then I'm going to eat something that has pesticides and herbicides. Well, get your soil tested. You know, take a sample, dig down six inches, and take a sample of your soil okay. to a, a you know a, a soil um, uh, place or a cooperative extension, and you know, tell them that you would like your soil tested for any kind of poisons or pesticides. You know, the thing is, you know, with all the rain and, and, and our climate here on the East Coast, um, you know, many times, you know, rain will clean the soil. It will, it will you know, it will drench the soil. It will get rid of a lot of the pesticides that were put in the soil for the most part. But you're right. I would, I would, go, I would go and get my soil tested to ensure that, you know, your soil is safe to grow plants and vegetables and and uh, fruits that that you can eat without uh, without worrying about it. So yeah, the, the main thing is get the soil tested. Okay. And I'm so glad you you what you said before to the other caller. We've moved several times to different houses. Sometimes we've rented, and you don't know the effort I had to take. Uh, I had to tell the owner, please, please do not. We're renting this whole. Do not put anything down. Uh, uh, and I had to also say, you know, I am alert. I'm very allergic to things. So, but it took that um, because their go-to is to to put the herbicides and pesticides down. And I, it's so sad. It's so sad for those of us that have a, you know, a, um, that understand that it's 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 very toxic. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I've spoke to uh, many homeowners associations. You know condos, subdivisions, and, um, you know, a lot of them are very strict in that, you know, uh, you know, we, mow, we start mowing in, in April, we put the step one of the herbicide, step two goes down in May, step three goes down in June. I mean, they're just loading soils up with these pesticides, and next thing you know, these little kids are playing in them. You know, it's not necessary to really use uh, so many chemicals on your lawn right you know people tell me how do i how do i how do i get a good lawn how do i get a nice lawn without putting you know so much pesticides down and it really it, it, it from an ecological standpoint it's really simple you know 
don't mow your grass too too low. You know, you mow your grass too low, like last summer, it all burnt out. Keep it high. Keep it above three inches. And you know what I tell people who want a nice lawn? Seed it. Seed it again. And then seed it again. Hmm. The more seed you put on your lawn just before a rainstorm, the thicker the grass is going to be. Also, another important thing you could do to your lawn, lawns like they're a, a neutral pH. You could you could throw some lime on your lawn. Lime with a little bit of calcium. Now, that's not a chemical. That's basically you're just throwing lime, which is a rock, on your lawn, and you're raising the pH a little bit. And how do you fertilize your lawn? Every time you mow it, you fertilize it. All those grass clippings decompose and get into your lawn. There's your nitrogen. There's your phosphorus. There's your potassium. You know, these these blowers that that that, that blow hurricanes out of there out of their pipes, you know? They're just wiping out all the organic uh, uh, on a lawn. I had this I had this meeting with my guys yesterday. I said, listen, lawn crews, get away from blowing uh, all these clippings on the lawn. If it's thick, rake it off. You know, I tell them, when we do spring cleanups, don't blow the lawns, rake it off, because what we're doing is we're taking the bulk off, we're leaving some of the leaves, we're leaving some of the sticks, and then we're, we're mulching it. We're mowing it back into the ground. And, and that's giving the soil more organic. You do it that way, and you, you, you're handling and you're fertilizing and, and you're taking care of your lawn in a more natural way. Okay. Um, can I just ask just quickly, do you have, we have a local pool here, and they keep adding chlorine. Do you have an opinion on salt, salted pools versus chlor- chlorinated? I, I keep thinking the chlorination really bad for us for anybody swimming in that water what do you think and i'll hang up <laughs> well, yeah you know i'm not a big fan of chlorine too i'm, I'm semi-allergic to chlorine as a kid salt water works and i'll tell you another new thing that's gaining popularity and that's these natural pools you know you set up you set up a pool in your yard not so much you know as, as, as you know with 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 sides and a pump but, you know, you create like a, a, a little planting area, almost like you're mimicking a little bit of a wetland area at the edge of, of, of your of the far edge of your pool. And the water gets circulated through these plants and you're cleaning it naturally. It's like swimming in a, a clean pond. And, uh, you know, they're, they're gaining more popularity. I've seen a few of them out there. Uh, but there's still there's still a long ways to go before, before people really accept them. But, yeah, uh, salt water... Uh, saltwater pools are much um, much healthier for you than than chlorinated pools. Okay. She's gone. Oh, she's gone. She said she was going to hang up. Okay. Well, we have some more calls, but uh, before we get to the next call, I did want to bring up another subject, uh, Pete, because uh, this coming Saturday is Earth Day. Uh, the late Senator Gaylord Nelson established it in 1970 to bring light to the issue of environmental responsibility in the wake of a number of environmental catastrophes at that time. Well, watching the news on TV, there seems to be an environmental catastrophe every day right now. So are they just different ones? Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, Leonard, this whole... Uh, what a great what a great concept this whole Earth thing is, and you know one of the things we do here at Native is uh, we celebrate Earth Day and we celebrate it with the kids because what's what's going to change a lot of what we're doing right here today is the next generation. I mean, every year uh, we have uh, the, the Pauling High School fifth graders come to Native Landscapes 
We walk around on the Appalachian Trail, and these kids just want to learn about the natural world. They just love getting out of class and walking around in the woods. And I bombard them with, you know, the swamp, why this plant grows in the swamp over here. Now we're in a little bit of an upland situation. Why that plant grows over here? This plant shows you that the pH is this. And they just love that. And on Earth Day, we do the same thing. They have a big thing going on up at Dover High School tomorrow, which I'm going to be a big part of. And, you know, the important part is education. You know, why is it so important to, to keep a cleaner environment and plant native plants? Because we want to have clean water 50 or 60 years from now. And, and, and we want to have wildlife flourishing in our backyards. You know, it's, it, it's a common sense approach to, to land management practices that we all need to start practicing. My guest is Pete Morosky, and we're talking about gardening and the environment and taking your calls. And let's take another call. BAI, you're on the air. Oh, yes, it's Carol. I have the second part of my question about the planting the soil in containers. And I have the, um, uh, the Coast of Maine uh, product with the castings, uh, this bed soil or something. Coast of Maine, and what else do you right. recommend to put in the containers? Right. The, the important part about container planting is that you use container plants. I see a lot of people taking soil out of their garden and dumping it into a container, thinking that that's okay to do. But once again, you're dealing with soil compaction issues. Container plants want to be want to be put in a light soil, so it, it doesn't compact and 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 the, and the roots. You know, don't don't uh, choke because they're not getting enough oxygen. Um, also, in container plants, you have to fertilize more often because they can't retrieve nutrients out of the ground uh, like container plants do. So please stay away from a lot of synthetic fertilizers. You know, go with an organic, slow-release oh, fertilizer yeah. that puts a little uh, puts a little uh, uh, nutrients in the soil every time it rains. And, and, and that's the best, you know, that's the most nutrition, nut, nutrient, nutritious way to, to grow fruits and vegetables in a container, um, you know, in, in, in a more organic manner. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. We thank you so much for your call. And we, uh, we, we thank all of you who have called. Uh, Pete, if there are people, if they want to contact you when we're not on the air, is there a way to do that? Oh, absolutely. You can call us at any time at 845-855-7050. Uh, you can email me at pete at nativelandscaping.net or nlpauling at gmail.com. You can take a weekend ride up from the city and uh, stop here at Native Landscapes and, and spend the afternoon here at the Garden Center, go for a hike, or take the train up, take Metro North Harlem Line. And, um, and, and on the weekends, it stops right here behind the Garden Center. And uh, There's become, an Appalachian uh, Trail stop, right? That's right. It's the Appalachian Trail stop on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Metro North Line, on uh, the Harlem Line. And it's the only Appalachian Trail stop along the whole Appalachian Trail. And this time of year... I mean, all the way stopped, from Georgia to Maine, there's not another one? This is the only no, one right next to your, your, yeah. right next to your business? Right behind me. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 feet from, uh, from my office, the train, the train is. So, um, yeah, come on up. What a beautiful time of year. And, and then this, this whole Harlem Valley is such a beautiful area. You know, we're in the mountains. 
especially this time of year, everything is in bloom. The bluebirds, I was out there the other dude the other day, 20 bluebirds flew by my head. I mean, it's just, this is a wonderful time of year. So come on up into the country and uh, let's go take a hike. Are there certain things we should be growing to encourage certain birds or did, is the, uh, the variety the important thing? Well, you know, certain birds require or certain animals require, uh, you know, require certain food. You know, once again, when it comes to native plants, what I would do is I would I tend to plant a variety of, of different plants uh, on my property. I use a lot of, um, you know, I use a lot of clethra, uh, which is summer sweet. You know, here's a plant that uh, that flowers in the middle of the summer and it smells just like a lilac. And and the and the uh, insects and the and the uh, butterflies love it. Uh, witch hazel, you know, witch hazel is another plant that we plant uh, all over the place because it it, it has an um, it, it flowers in the winter time, but a lot of insects like to eat its leaves. Saint John's wort is another uh, uh, flowering shrub that flowers in the middle of the summer that ha- <clears throat> that's full of nectar. Uh, holly, bayberry, spice bush. You know, and all these plants, Leonard, that I'm uh, calling off here are also pretty much deer resistant. Uh, blueberries and viburnums. You know, you plant a mix of, of, of shrubs like that with, with different bloom times. You know, you plant the irises in the spring and then the black-eyed Susans in the summer and then the asters in, in the fall. you got a succession of blooms. So, you know, you keep in flower in, in your garden year-round, and, 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 and you're keeping the local insects, hummingbirds, and animals fed year-round by this whole succession of bloom planting. What are some of the uh, native plants that thrive well in apartments? Because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a fair number of our listeners live in apartments. Well, Leonard, here's, here's the problem with the native plants that are um, that are indigenous to this part of the world, uh, they really won't survive in apartments unless you bring them out and put them in the ground uh, hmm. in the fall because they need that frost and they need that chill in the wintertime in order to set bud and leaves for next season. So nine out of ten times our apartments are just too warm and they just don't have that seasonal chill that a lot of plants need in order to set themselves and get ready uh, for the next growing season. Well, I'm still uh, wondering about why the weather has been the way it is over the past year. What's your thinking on this matter? The heavy snows in some parts of the country and hot weather and other tornadoes in certain areas, more tornadoes than we've ever seen or haven't seen in a very long time. Well, you know, it's, are we doing something a, to exacerbate the situation? You know, it's it, that's a great question, Leonard, and it's it's one that climatologists and meteorologists are looking at very closely right now because, generally speaking, when you've got situations where you got extreme hot followed by cold, wet followed by dry, like we had last year. Last year we had the wettest summer uh, in history, and the summer before we had the uh, last summer we had the driest summer history. The summer before we had the wettest summer history. So it's it's like you know we're going back to the whole weather weirding thing. It's it's fluctuating. It, you know, cold is battling warm, and you know sometime sometime in the next twenty or thirty years, 
somebody's going to win out. You know, are we going to be planting uh, in, in the next 30 or 40 years? Are we going to be planting palm trees in Central Park? Hmm. Or, um, uh, you know, are, are we going to be digging out of our igloo? You know, it's hard to say, but you know what? Some of our kids are going to find out. <laughs> I know I won't be around, but <laughs> Pete, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. A reminder that people can reach you at nativelandscaping.net, right? And, That's right. And your uh, your Native Landscapes and Garden Center is on Route 22 in Pauling, New York, very close to the Appalachian Trail. So people can visit you and also take a little hike on the trail. Absolutely. Come on up, everybody. We'd love to see you here at the Garden Center. And thank you so much for being on our show again. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, you can access our over 800 past shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can check us out on Twitter. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take a moment to ask you to support BAI. Uh, This station uh, is running into all sorts of problems, just paying its rent and paying for its broadcast tower. Uh, So we need all of our listeners to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's given the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. Without your help, there's no way that this historic station, the only one in the New York dial that's completely listener-sponsored, can hope to stay on the air. And a great way to support BAI throughout the year is to become a sustaining member for $10, $15, $20, whatever level you choose, what we call a BAI buddy. Um, And if you do become a BAI buddy for $10 or more, which allows us, by the way, to plan for the future, we're happy to send you a BAI tote bag. I haven't seen enough BAI tote bags on the subway, so we need more of you to do that. Um, Make that call right now in the name of London Lopez at large um, so we can keep bringing you the programming that you won't hear anywhere else. Call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And to everyone who has already stepped up to support BAI in the name of London Lopez at large, we thank you very much. 